Welcome to episode number 13 of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field. In this episode, we will be speaking with Stephen Nolan, a bridge engineer at the Florida Department of Transportation. Stephen will be talking to us about the Halls River Bridge Project, which is a bridge project that was recently constructed in Florida, which displayed 12 items that were the first of a kind for a bridge. And much of these firsts were related to new and innovative materials and technology. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as an engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers build their core or soft skills. My co-host is Matt Picardle, also a licensed engineer, practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and an MS in structural engineering from UC San Diego. Matt also hosts the YouTube channel Structural Engineering Life, through which he promotes the structural engineering profession to engineering students and young professionals that are not familiar with the industry perspective. Now, before we get started on this episode, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free, so we ask that you please support them. And now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, CSI. Computers and Structures Inc. is recognized globally as the pioneering leader in software tools for structural and earthquake engineering. Software from CSI is used by thousands of engineering firms in over 160 countries for the design of major projects. CSI software is backed by more than four decades of research and development, making it the trusted choice of sophisticated design professionals everywhere. Listen up later on in this show, where I will tell you more about their great software packages and how they can help you. We also want to give a shout out to the Structural Engineering Institute, SEI, of ASCE. SEI is a dynamic community of more than 30,000 members from around the world advancing and serving structural engineering while influencing change on broader issues that shape the entire civil engineering community. You can gain technical, professional, and leadership experience by participating in your local SEI chapter or graduate student chapter at an SEI conference or through an SEI committee effort. This was an interesting, very technical episode focused around this Halls River Bridge, which did have some very interesting materials and technologies utilized. And I'd like to further introduce our guest that we're about to speak to, Stephen Nolan. As I mentioned earlier, he's a bridge engineer with the Florida DOT. He's been a registered professional engineer in Florida since 2001. He received his engineering degree from the University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia in 1989, then worked for a heavy civil contractor for several years before emigrating to the USA in 1996 and joining the Florida DOT. He currently leads the implementation of advanced materials for bridge applications within the Florida DOT State Structures Design Office. Here he is, Stephen Nolan. All right, now we are excited to welcome Stephen Nolan onto the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Stephen is a bridge engineer working for the Florida Department of Transportation. And we wanted to bring Stephen on to talk about the Halls River Bridge, which is an interesting project. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anthony. 
We reached out to you about the Halls River Bridge, found some interesting articles about it, about some of the things that were being done on that bridge. And I thought maybe a good place to start us off kind of before we go there, and we did give you a little bit of an intro earlier on, but just maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of your day-to-day responsibilities for the DOT to start us off. I've been working for the Florida Department of Transportation for it's 23 years now, and I came over here originally from Australia, and I've been working basically in the bridge engineering field for pretty much all of that time. Majority of my career, I was involved in standards development and maintenance for primarily bridge components, so bridge stress beams, piles, traffic railings. Also helping out with in-house designs for different superstructure types. As we broaden our standards for bridge design, we try them out on newer and different bridges. So we have started to explore corrosion-resistant materials, stainless steel, fiber-reinforced polymers. There's been a need for more of a specialty in that area. And we started hiring or looking for somebody back in around 2012, 13. We hired someone, they moved on to another job, then somebody else came into that position. I assisted them, they moved on. And so eventually I I stepped up and said, well, since I'm going to be involved in this in the standard side, let me take the lead. As it's grown, I've sort of left my standards development responsibilities behind and now I'm the lead coordinator, let's say, for advanced materials involved in in structural design for bridges for the department here in Florida. We're going to jump in and talk a little bit about this Halls River Bridge. And Stephen sent us quite a bit of information about the bridge and we've read up about it, you know, leading up to the interview. And there are, for those of you that are structural engineers that haven't had experience with some of the materials we might talk about, I just want to mention a few of them quickly with some of the acronyms. We have the hybrid composite beams, HCB, carbon fiber reinforced polymer, CFRP, glass fiber reinforced polymer, GFRP, and there'll maybe be a couple other ones that we sprinkle in. Stephen, talk about the bridge, this Halls River Bridge project overall. Just give us an overall summary of the bridge, what was needed, how it came about. This is really the sole access to a community out on the coast on the Gulf of Mexico. And the bridge was originally, or the bridge that was there was built in 1954. So it was both functionally obsolete roadway width-wise and it was starting to become, say, structurally deficient due to concerns about a corrosion. So it was 60 years old when we started the design for replacement. So that's pretty good considering that originally most of these structures only envisioned about a 50-year design life. Some of the challenges in this environment is the salinity in the water. It's not probably the most aggressive environment that we see in Florida, but it is tidally influenced, um, especially when we get storm surge coming up in there. Some of the issues that were of concern for the replacement were to provide a structure that had little to no maintenance for the local county that would be responsible for maintaining the structure. At the same time, there was an effort by FHWA to look at some of these more innovative, durable structural systems. And the hybrid composite beam, or HCB, was one of those systems that they had helped fund some earlier research on the development. And there was a few projects up north that were using it. We were looking for a candidate project in Florida that could benefit from this application of a a lightweight prefabricated beam element 
that shifted the paradigm of the design and the durability that we were looking for. That bridge came up as a candidate and the local district volunteered to do the design. I'm not sure they knew what they were getting into. And as you will hear that this project grew and grew and grew into a number of different demonstrations of advanced technology for bridge applications. So it ended up being quite an interesting project in the end, beyond just the original vision. So Stephen, talk a little bit about the funding, I guess because the federal government got involved and decided that they wanted to try some of these advanced technologies, they, they funded the project. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. I'm not a finance guy, but we can use state funds on a state highway system, but local roads, we cannot use our highway transportation funds for state roads. So there are allocations set aside at the federal level to assist local cities and counties. And so that's how this bridge replacement was funded through the local bridge replacement program. Cost of the bridge was 100% funded by uh, the federal government. There are local taxes that, that go into that. There wasn't any state money involved in or even allowed to be used for the construction of the bridge. Like as an engineer, it's good to just hear about programs or initiatives like this where they are funding initiatives to try to explore. I mean, I don't know if you had an experience with this, Matt, on your end in terms of buildings, but to be able to explore you know, new materials that might be beneficial going forward. When you're first trying something new, typically it's city says it's not for code, and then you're going to have to go in the building industry, more of the performance-based design where you present to the city a whole bunch of research. It's basically a longer process, and it's we're mostly private, so obviously the owner would be funding or someone would be funding, not the government, but it is a longer process getting something through. But that is where a lot of these new innovative uh, structures come in. It's just a, a longer process and a lot more presenting and working with the city and third-party uh, reviewers. The IDEA program is jointly funded uh, through AASHTO, American Association of State Highway Officials, and FHWA, the Federal Highway Administration. And so they funnel that into the NCHRP program, a lot of acronyms here, the National Cooperative Highway Research Program. And for those elements that are new and, and developing that may not see the light of day, they have this more high-risk program called the IDEA program. And originally, that's where this project came out of from 2007-ish, I think it was. It was an idea that had been developed earlier at, at a university and proof of concept. We're at the end of a long chain of events that there was a lot of confidence building that, that went on before we actually got to where we are. And I might say that Maine DOT had, I think, five of these bridges using these girders since before we even got off the ground. So a lot of credit to them for taking the initiative. So was it mostly the hybrid composite beams or that was like the new technology or, or was it also a combination of the CFRP and the, the GFRP bars? For this project? It ended up being a combination. It started out around 2013, just looking at the HCBs, but it made sense because we were at the same time looking at corrosion-resistant piling using FRP pre-stressing strands. We had some research ongoing and some 
demonstration pile driving that turned out to be successful. So we had just standardized our pre-stress piling for the use of FRP pre-stressing in spirals. And so we chose to implement that on this project in the early part of the design phase. And then as it progressed, we'd developed or adopted criteria for GFRP reinforced concrete design, which got then applied to the elements that were higher up, vent caps that support the beams. And ultimately, it was decided to use it for the deck and the traffic railings just to ensure that the entire bridge was an example of of composite technology in some form or another. That's what makes this project unique in that every element has some form of FRP composites, predominantly steel-free, but there is a a few pounds of of steel in there somewhere. I know from from the building industry, if we want to waterproof something for like in a sea environment, I've seen the industry use epoxy covered rebar. What are the advantages of going with uh, CFRP and GFRP versus the epoxy coated rebars? Well, the epoxy um, coating provides a barrier and there is a maximum life of protection that that can provide. The benefits of the FRP materials is that they are immune to chlorides corrosion. So there will never be a a chance of corrosion and and the detrimental spalling that might occur after that. I mean, there is some degradation over time of the FRP material, but it is essentially in the case of GFRP glass, this is essentially an inorganic material, and then the carbon is benign, really. It's just the matrix surrounding them that is a little more sensitive to environmental conditioning. But what we've found in the research that we've sponsored and, and also uh, followed is that the concrete provides adequate protection from some of the other issues that, like UV degradation that typically aren't an issue with steel reinforcing materials. But as far as chlorides and moisture, the research has proven that we really have very little concern for that beyond 100 years of design life. So basically, in terms of versus the epoxy rebar, I mean, with epoxy, the concrete can still degrade. But with these uh, FRP materials, I mean, it's a lot more durable than epoxy because the epoxy is just for the rebar, right? Yeah, the epoxy just forms a barrier over the rebar and you may get maybe 30 years additional design life out of it as long as it's not compromised during construction. And then you can get corrosion initiation, which then expands and cracks the concrete, which accelerates the deterioration. And if you don't go out and have a maintenance program to go out and and repair these types of problems or seal the cracks when they do occur, then ultimately you're going to have a a major rehabilitation issue. We have addressed corrosion uh, in Florida, which is predominantly from the ground up from the water and the soils by densifying our concrete rather than using barrier systems on the reinforcing like epoxy coating. So concrete cover, fly ash and microsilica additives in the concrete create a, a much more effective barrier protection. But ultimately, if the concrete cracks or when the concrete cracks, then that protection is compromised and you either have to get in there and, and repair it and seal it up to prevent further degradation or plan on replacing your structure at some 
more frequent interval. Before we go further with Stephen, ask him a few more questions about design or maintenance of the bridge. There were 12 specific things that were done kind of first time on the Hall Rivers Bridge that haven't been done before. We'll list all these in our show notes, of course. But real quick, I'm just going to mention some of them here. Firstly, every component contained FRP of some form. The driven pile had CFRP piles, um, pile splices that were using epoxy that were doweled, the bent caps. I can go through all of them, white cement traffic railing, the recycled asphalt aggregate, GFRP, retaining wall. And there's a whole list of them. And, and again, we'll link to them, which I think is one of the things that made this an interesting project. As Stephen mentioned before, this kind of innovative technology or materials kind of used throughout. And Stephen, one of the questions that I would have for you from a structural engineering standpoint is from a design perspective, what does that entail when you're using a newer technology or a newer material that you have to either be aware of or how does that process differ? It can be pretty daunting in the beginning. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. We have implemented these products on this bridge and, and a number of other bridges. But realistically, some of this technology has been in the works for 20, 25 years. The first FRP reinforced bridges were built 30 years ago in Germany. And then there was a pre-stress bridge in Japan that's like 22 years old now, I think. Some of the materials we're using haven't really changed that much in form. They've improved the, the resins and the, and the quality of the fibers, perhaps. So there is a significant history. What's been missing is the codification of the design process and what are acceptable factors of safety for design, given that these materials aren't as ductile as our traditional um, steel materials. And then what are realistic degradation factors that you might need to incorporate to ensure that you have this longer design life that we're claiming we can get with these materials. So there's been a, a lot of research that's been done in the last 25 years looking at that. And in the meantime, we've been using these materials for repairs simply because there wasn't really any other option. You know, we've been using initially glass and then carbon fiber wraps for repairs of columns and beams that have been impacted by oversized trucks and other corrosion-related repairs when we need to go in and strengthen. The forms have changed a little bit, or let's say for new construction, the forms we're looking at are, are probably a little bit different. The hybrid composite beam is probably a, a good example of a combination of both an exterior shell, which is FRP, and then internal reinforcement. In the case of the HCB, is galvanized strand, but the principles are, are similar. So, But you're doing it on the job, basically. It's not like training for this, you know, using some similar maybe calculations or equations, just learning about how to design around these new materials. Yes, we are learning on the job, but there has been efforts from technical committees at ACI and at ASHTO to develop guide specifications. The one thing we don't have is mandatory design specifications, but ACI is working on one of those. It should be out in a couple of years, and the Canadians have a couple for building and uh, highway bridges as well. It's, we're getting to the point where this is going to become pretty standard practice when it's applicable. There's a premium applied to using these materials in, in many cases, and so you want to make sure that you're spending the money in the right place when you need to. 
but there's you touch on an issue there's there's a whole training initiative that really needs to be developed to ensure that we're all consistently designing to the same standards it's not something that structural engineers aren't used to anyway but it's just learning a, a new set of equations and in some cases different principles one follow-up on that Stephen, is you mentioned earlier on how the federal government got involved they were looking for project to utilize some of these newer technologies and newer materials. And based on everything kind of you just said, going forward now, how does this project play a role in terms of the development of guidelines in the future? Or since it has a lot of firsts in this project, you know, is there going to be follow-up or any kind of recording of information or data that to help them with future decisions around these materials? Definitely, yes. So we have uh a slew of material available on our FRP Innovation webpage specifically related to this project and then the other projects that are ongoing. There hasn't been a real focused effort at this point on the FRP side from uh, FHWA, but we're hoping that will change in, in the near future. We have initiated some design training that was delivered recently at our design at our transportation symposium. It was really just the tip of the iceberg. We're currently developing two formal courses for pre-stress FRP and then conventional FRP reinforced concrete design. And so those will be hopefully ready in the spring that we will provide to our local designers in, in Florida. And we have some interest at the national level from other states to put some of the um, NCHRP funding towards that, hopefully for delivery of a, of a national program. Looks like, so since this is kind of experimental and it kind of looks like you guys are trying to see how this bridge is going to perform, are the hopes that this bridge is basically going to have like very little maintenance? Is there some type of maintenance program or are you expecting maintenance on this type of bridge? So we're not expecting to have to do any maintenance typically. On this bridge, the bridge programs work in the U.S. is that there is a mandatory two-year inspection required from the federal government, and that's usually when you identify deficiencies in newer structures. And then, if you identify deficiencies in older structures, then those are the you track those over time, and you may even have a increased frequency of inspection if necessary. What we're doing here, we may never see be alive to see the benefits from because we're designing structures right now for 75 years. Typically, we see 20, 25 years before you need any significant amount of maintenance. And usually that's in an aggressive environment. 50 years, definitely you've got to be doing something significant. We do not expect anything necessarily to appear as detrimental in the performance of this bridge for 50 to 75 years. So I'll be um, not working anymore. We certainly have ongoing testing using accelerated aging techniques in the laboratory. There are a number of, of bridges that have been built in the last two decades that are continually being monitored. In fact, ACI just finished a, a follow-up study of some bridges that had GFRP reinforced decks that were 15 to 20 years old, and so those are subject to de-icing salts. 
there was very positive results from that beyond what we assume for design currently. So that sort of gives some added confidence that, that we're on the very conservative side for the factors that we use. We are going to go out and load test this bridge in the spring just to take some measurements on the deflections as a baseline, let's just say, and then we'll go back periodically, probably after the first year and then maybe a couple of years after that to basically measure again. And what you're looking for there is a change in the in the deflections over time. So that sort of indicates a, a loss of stiffness. We don't really foresee that, that to be anything that will be a concern, but... I guess one follow-up on that, Stephen, obviously we know that one of the problems in, well, here in the U.S. and certainly beyond is just infrastructure in general. You know, a lot of infrastructure is old and failing in different ways. Now that you've worked with these materials closely on this project, do you see these materials, they could be utilized in retrofits of old bridges or, or different kinds of structures as part of the Obviously, when you say solution to the infrastructure problem, there's lots of things that needs to be done. But do you see this as one possible real big part of the solution? Definitely in the right locations, I think this is a, a very realistic solution. Fortunately, we don't have a lot of snow down here in Florida, so we don't have a need for putting de-icing salts on our decks. But one of the major expenses through the life of a bridge up north is is deck replacements. And I know in, in Canada now especially in the eastern provinces, they're primarily using GFRP in their bridge decks just to eliminate that concern. So instead of having a a, a rehabilitation or replacement project uh, in 25 years for the bridge deck, they don't have to necessarily worry about it. We have the opposite problem in Florida, whereas our foundations corrode from the bottom up. That is a, a little more challenging as a wholesale replacement. So typically what we do is we put pile jackets with cathodic protection or, or some other technique to strengthen the piles if there's been any corrosion loss. That's why it's important for us from the beginning to, to put these materials in just so that we don't have to go back at the ground level or over water where it's expensive to do construction. And there are also environmental restrictions and issues that can come up. We're focusing primarily on using this in our in our substructures. We've done this demonstration and we have a few other low-level bridges where we're using it. Funny enough, we have a, a big problem with jet skis in Florida spraying salt water up onto our underside of our bridge decks and beams. So we have a project in the Keys where we're replacing three spans where the recreational watercraft go on a bridge that, you know, I think the, the span is about 40 years old. So that's a probably a uniquely coastal issue with these jet ski rooster tails. Yeah, the needs vary depending on geographic locations. Inland, obviously, you're not going to have saltwater marshes to span over, but again, brine and, and de-icing salts on the deck uh, create an issue that have to be dealt with some way or another, either through barriers or rehabilitation. Could you go over some of the, remember you were mentioning some of the construction and construction challenges on this project and some of the lessons learned? You might read some articles that have been out over the last three years since this project was at least advertised. In the beginning, we had a lot of geotechnical challenges, which specifically related in any way to the innovative materials. 
but they did highlight some things that I think were important to learn. So we have a lot of cast geology in Florida, which is limestone caverns. So when you do your geotechnical borings, you think you know where the, the rock is or the sound material is, and sometimes it doesn't turn out to be that way 10 feet to the left. We had piling that was estimated to be a certain length in the order of 60 to 70 feet. And once we'd got out there and done the test piling and confirmed that, they ordered the production piles. And on one of the bent locations, we ended up having to go two and a half times the original test pile estimation. And that was because we essentially skipped over one of the bent locations to speed up, minimize the amount of test piling that we're doing. And we've created a 3D model of the bridge and the pile lengths, and it just looks like a big hole essentially underneath one of the locations. And it wasn't the same all the way across the bridge either. I mean, the bridge isn't that wide. It's, it's only about, what is it, 70 feet wide or 60 feet wide? But some of the piles were 120 foot long. And then on the other side, they only needed to be in the order of 60 feet. So all those things created some delays where we had to order splice pieces to ensure we had enough pile length and to ensure that the splices to the piles were as corrosion resistant as the original materials, we had to utilize a, basically a new design for the splice. The materials that you use in the splice aren't the same as what it used in the pre-stressing of the pile and they weren't available. So because it's such a small volume of material, the producers really didn't have it on hand. And then by the time they said they could produce the material, the contractor didn't want to be delayed that long. So we actually ended up using stainless steel as a, a replacement in some cases for doweling, which was good to have a, another option. So one of the lessons learned there was to have some one pre-approved materials, two redundancy in your supply chain, and maybe even redundancy in your material types. We have rolled this out more broadly now with multiple material options so that we don't get caught in that situation. So that was for the foundation supports for the bridge. And we had a similar situation with the seawalls at the abutments. Originally, the abutment seawalls were tied back systems that weren't tipped very deep in the foundations. And the designer wasn't very comfortable with that, with the increased height and loads that we were placing at the abutments. So we went with much deeper piles. And to eliminate some of the constructability challenges, did away with the tieback option. The problem was that the caprock material turned out to be a lot harder to, to penetrate than was originally estimated. And the contractor spun his wheels for several weeks trying to, to get started, to get the sheet piles down to the minimum tip that was required, actually several months, to be honest. They went through four or five different construction techniques. And in the end, we redesigned those bulkheads to be tied back so we didn't have to excavate so deep through the rock material. That really could have happened with any any type of material. The advantage here was we were able to utilize the longer sheet piles, cut them off and use the cutoff sections for dead man tieback, dead man anchors without any concern for corrosion. The piles cut through very easily with the concrete saw because there were no metal components in there. So contractor appreciated that. That had some benefits out of that challenge. We had 
wildlife challenges on this project. We had a osprey nest on top of the contractor's crane, which meant he couldn't work for three weeks because it's endangered species and they ended up relocating the or providing a, a uh, nesting location and, and then the local environmental agency came out and relocated the entire nest. So that was pretty neat and we got some good photos out of it, but I'm sure the contractor didn't really appreciate it. That could have been mitigated, I guess, by having a strobe, flashing strobe or something on top of the, the crane to discourage the wildlife, but you don't know what you don't know, like I said before. Following up in the future, will there possibly be some publications or will there be ways for other structural or bridge engineers to just be able to learn from what you've learned on this project? Sure, yeah. There's a number of articles that have been published in journals that have used the findings from this bridge to explore some different avenues. I think one of the most important ones that have come out of this was a life cycle cost analysis work and even the life cycle analysis from an environmental perspective that's been done at the University of Miami. So there are several projects, several articles in Concrete International also, and then technical journal publications in the Journal of Composite Construction, and I can't remember off the top of my head where the other ones are, but there's been probably half a dozen presentations at engineering conferences on this bridge. So there's a wealth of information that's out there. We also have a designated web page for these types of projects for the department, and there's some information on there related to the workshops that we held and then fast facts. There is Finally, a, a monitoring report that we had commissioned as part of the, the construction to track all the construction activities, and that has been periodically presented at, at different conferences, but the finalised report should be ready in the next month or so, and, and that will be posted to the department's website and then indexed under the uh, Transportation Research Board system, so you'll be able to find that eventually. We will find as many of those resources net right now today that are available and we'll post them as well. We'll link to them from the show notes of this episode, which you'll be able to find at structuralengineeringchannel.com. Look for episode number 13. Once again, Stephen Nolan, bridge engineer at the Florida Department of Transportation. Stephen, thanks for taking some time out of your, your busy day today to come on with us and talk to us about the Halls River Bridge project. It sounds like an, a really interesting one and it's exciting to hear about the kind of these new materials and, and what maybe the rest of the community and really the country and beyond will be able to learn from the project. So thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Anthony and Matt. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Stephen Nolan today. Stephen, obviously has a lot of experience with these materials and he really spent a lot of time on this project and it sounds like the project is really going to benefit the structural engineering community as a whole in a big way. So to wrap this one up, I do want to take a moment once again to thank our sponsor for this episode, CSI. CSI produces five primary software packages, SAP 2000, CSI Bridge, eTabs, Safe, and Perform 3D. Each of these programs offers unique capabilities and tools that are tailored to different types of structures and problems, allowing users to find just the right solution for their work. 
SAP 2000 is intended for use on civil structures, such as dams, communication towers, and stadiums. CSI Bridge offers powerful parametric design of concrete and steel bridges. ETABS has been developed specifically for multi-story commercial and residential building structures. The SAFE system provides an efficient and powerful program for the analysis and design of concrete slabs and foundations with or without post-tensioning. Perform 3D is a highly focused nonlinear tool offering powerful performance-based design capabilities. With CSI, you can be confident that you have the finest structural engineering software available backed by a company with an unmatched record of innovation and an unrivaled commitment to meet the ever-evolving needs of the profession. You can learn more about them at www.csiamerica.com. We would love to hear your feedback on this episode and all episodes. You can leave it by visiting structuralengineeringchannel.com. You can also find there a summary of each episode. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode if you look for episode number 13, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books that were mentioned during this episode. And Stephen generously put together a list of the many links and research papers and articles that he did mention in this episode. And we will, again, link to that on the show notes page for episode 13 at structuralengineeringchannel.com. Don't forget, you can check out our online workshop, the Engineering Management Accelerator online workshop, by visiting engineer2manager.com. That's engineer2manager.com. If you're an aspiring engineering manager or young manager and you want to work on your people skills, this is the program for you. Our next live session starts in February, or you can sign up today for the on-demand session. Just visit engineertomanager.com. And until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors.